This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. And good morning to you. It is indeed Brooke Spector. We are on the Deep Dive. We are live on High FM. And our guest this morning is somebody we go to periodically to get a sense about what is going on with your parliament and the issues that your parliament deals with. And that, of course, is the Daily Mavericks uh, parliamentary journalist, uh, Marion Merton. Marion, good morning and welcome and glad to have you with us again. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, we can now. Okay, miracle of modern communication. Hi, you can you hear me? Times. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry, connectivity. Maybe, I, I don't know if your bandwidth is strong enough. Do you, are, are you, is it clear for you now? Absolutely, now it's perfect. Let me, yes, I can hear everything now. Okay, I was just introducing you, saying you're the person, you're our go-to person when we want to talk about the goings-on and uh, the activities of the parliament and what the parliament must deal with. And I, I noticed this morning you've got an article, in fact, that brings us up to date on some of it, uh, including some fairly contentious questions like a presidential impeachment, moving the parliament to Swanee, uh, and uh, figuring out how to rebuild the parliamentary building in the meantime, and the, the extraordinary cost that it may involve. And I know there are a host of other things, but why don't you kick this off and, and give us the overview. We're swooping down from 5,000 feet, and we're coming in closely. Now tell us what in the world the parliament is doing. Um, a lot of things all at various different fronts, but I think the, the one point that has captured everybody's imagination and interest in one way or the other is, of course, the whole ongoing saga about the president, those dollars stuffed in cushions on his farm, Palapala. The impeachment uh, processes that are slowly but surely unfolding are part of that. The ATM, African Transformation Movement, Buyuzungula, uh, has laid uh, a, mo uh, a complaint, a motion that got accepted. Uh, political parties have proposed 70 names, some of them judges, retired, others. And now it'll be up to the speaker to decide to put this panel together of three independent experts who will have a look on the papers, we're, we're, we're no losing, public we're... hearings, and obviously input also from the president. Sorry, I think I may have dropped off. Yeah. <laughs> Just to go Sorry. back. We Marion, why, why don't you drop your video and just let us use your audio so that we get a better signal? Can I? Sorry, can I in? Oh dear, Marion, drop your drop your video and let us just have your audio feed because I think we're taking up too much bandwidth trying to get through a stubborn pipe here. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector.
Okay, now we are live again. We are back with Marion, and she has she has killed the evil the evil geniuses or gods that are destroying our our connection. She she was busy giving us the the the, the whys and wherefores of a panel that's be, being put together to investigate the possibility of considering the chance that the president might be impeached. Is that about right? That's about right. Yes, absolutely. It's it's part of a 17 or so step process. It's very detailed and presumably the president would be hoping that this panel uh, it will be independent. It will make an assessment and recommendations only, but presumably he will hope that it, it accepts his version and then will say that there are no grounds uh, for any impeachment proceedings. If that's the case, then of course the National Assembly must still vote on it, adopt it, and then that would be the end. If that independent panel, as happened, for example, with Busisiwem Kwebana, our public protector, currently facing such impeachment proceedings, then we could be into very interesting, very interesting political and governance times, but it's it's too early to tell at this point in time. But certainly the, 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 the process is slowly but surely unfolding, as are questions about Pala Pala and the forex fraud, which the, the president had said on the 30th of August that he's been, quote unquote, counseled and advised not to speak to Parliament about it. Um, he has spoken to his ANC Integrity Committee about it, and obviously he's spoken that we know that already to the public protector. Um, so on the 30th of August in the, in the question session in the House, the president indicated that he would not, he'd been counseled and advised to let investigative processes unfold, and that of course disrupted the House we now know that the president will have to answer the follow-up questions on the 29th of September, and the opposition parties are not happy to wait that long. Marion, hang on just a sec. We, we, we'll have to do our live reads of commercial messages because without them, and if people don't pay attention to them, we don't come on the air. And it's important that people hear these messages. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back live, I hope. Craig, are we back live? We are indeed. And we are speaking with Marion Merton, uh, who is the parliamentary reporter for the Daily Maverick, among many other things that she does with her day. And she was explaining to us the long process by which an impeachment inquiry would begin to take place over the extraordinarily expensive livestock that may or may not have been paid for in U.S. currency and then shoved in a sofa, uh, and whether or not that is a, an impeachable offense. I, I'm just curious, why would the president take advice that says, don't say anything in public on this, just talk to your party, in other societies and other countries where a president is being charged with misfeasance or malfeasance or unconstitutional behavior or whatever it might be, they go on the offensive. They say, there is no way in the world I'm guilty of anything other than having tea versus coffee for breakfast. 
and they, you know, they spend considerable amount of energy uh, explaining that that they have done nothing wrong. And in this case, the president has taken the road basically to be quiet about it. Yes, and and, and I think you've 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 hit the nail on the head. It's 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 one of the things that that certainly on the on the opposition benches in Parliament, but I think also just generally across society. People are asking exactly that question, and and it's 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 weird, and it's 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 bizarre, but the president has been, I mean, and it's been hammered. He's been hammered in public. Um, if you recall, in June, his uh, budget vote debate, for example, for over two days, nothing was said except, "Why are you having dollars stuffed in sofa cushions on your farm?" It's not going to go away. Um, he's quite adamant that um, due process must unfold. Due process in this context is the Hawks investigations, the South African Reserve Bank probe. Questions had been due yesterday. Uh, he had previously gotten uh, 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 an extension. And then, of course, there's also the public protector investigation. We do know that he's answered the questions. Uh, News 24, Carl Cowan wrote a story about how uh, 580,000 US dollars were paid by a Sudanese businessman who's based in Dubai for some cattle. December 2019, the, the cattle, for, cattle, for all we know, was never collected. Again, it raises more questions and, 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 and the president has decided that it's going to be silence from his side. Curious, and it has raised concerns, certainly if you listen to the, uh, the, the opposition MPs in parliament, certainly their line is that because the president is keeping silent, he's got something to hide. Yeah, but that's the usual uh, attack line that any party in opposition would take uh, against a chief executive in pretty much any country, uh, unless it was an absolute monarchy. Uh, but if you don't say something in your own defense, we will assume that we're right and you're wrong, and you have to go. But as you say, this is just the beginning of a uh, multi-step process, which could, let me ask, would, it, would this process conceivably continue to run on until the election in a year and a half's time? Possibly, yes. It depends on. So, for example, so we are at the stage where the Speaker of the National Assembly uh, will put together a panel. That panel will have 30 days, hopefully without any extensions. Um, and then we can expect in 30 days after the panel is formally constituted that there will be a report that will have to go to the House for adoption. And that report will be a key moment in the process. If that report by the independent panel says, no, actually, we're quite happy. The president hasn't done anything that's impeachable. It's all good. We recommend that nothing further happens. That's the end of the process. There and then, once the, uh, once the National Assembly adopts that recommendation. I'm not going to put you on the spot and say, what will the report contain and what will the, and how will it be adopted? And will this all go away and puff of smoke? Because I don't quite think that either, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, 
I mean, uh, the, the other option, of course, then is that that report by the independent panel will say that it had a look at everything. Our recommendation is that actually, yes, the next stage of the impeachment process must unfold. That report will also go to the House. The National Assembly will have to vote on it. And then it's going to be quite interesting. Will the ANC use its majority to nix this report to make sure it doesn't go anywhere? Will the governing ANC, it, it has 230 out of the 400 seats, so it's, it can do it. Will it step up to protect the president from impeachment proceedings, uh, inquiries, if if, and it is a big if at this stage, uh, let's bear that in mind, a huge if. And then we, we, we're going to look at a very interesting moment in time in, in, in our democracy. All of this, what we're talking about is, is quite speculative, but I, it's, it's one of the things that, that makes politics and parliamentary politics just so interesting, doesn't it? And it will keep you very busy. Yes, um, it will. <laughs> now we're talking about the, this parliament that will have say the next 60 days or thereabouts before uh, the, the report is uh, is created and then delivered. And then that runs smack into the holiday season. So it isn't until next year that procedures in the parliament conceivably would happen. And then that runs into the, ele the beginnings of the election season. And all the time in the meantime, there is lingering two other questions about the parliament, as I understand it. One is whether or not it should stay in Cape Town in the first place. And two, uh, if it does, uh, should that building, that old historic building that was gutted by fire, should the money be spent to rebuild it or to try an entirely different approach? I mean, the, the question of moving the parliament to, to uh, some other place, presumably Pretoria at Swane, has been, has been something of a discussion since 1910. Um, and it, it hasn't really, really moved beyond where it is now. But tell us what's, because uh, I mean, a, a motion has been, or I'm not, a recommendation has been made that there be a motion. A today. private member's bill, yes. Look, it's, it's quite interesting, and you're quite right. In democratic South Africa, we had, I think, one moment very, very intense in the late 90s where there was a serious consideration of moving parliament up north to, to Gauteng. It was, it, was, it, was, it was dismissed and Parliament stayed where it was. This current proposal goes back to 2016 when Jacob Zuma basically suggested that it was time to move Parliament. It's costing too much money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then as these processes unfold and sometimes it, it's quite slow. So in 2018, there was a socioeconomic impact study. It's not actually ever seen the light of day until literally this last couple of weeks, the EFF has been pushing for it. Why? Because the EFF wants this socioeconomic report on the impact of moving parliament because its leader, Julius Malema, has now started the process for a private member's bill. MPs can do that. They can bring their own initiative legislation. And this particular uh, private member's bill is 
about moving parliament specifically to Pretoria, to Chwane. So that's caused now quite a little bit of simmering and stirring and bubbling, because as you correctly said, it comes at a time when you know, just coming out of the COVID restrictions and the lockdown limitations and everything, there was this devastating fire. The National Assembly is pretty much gutted. Uh, the roof is collapsing. I still don't understand. More damage would have been created in the Cape Rains because nobody even put a tarp or anything over that roof. So the Cape heavy winter rains would have come into the building as well. Now, the big question is, how long will it take to repair the building? How much will it cost? A rough indication we have from the committee with an awfully long name. It's called the Joint Standing Committee on the Financial Management of Parliament Committee. A couple of weeks ago, the indications are that it'll cost about 990, just under a billion rand to repair parliament. We're looking at three years. Other plans need to be made for office space. There's been a number of committee rooms uh, that have been affected by the fire. And of course, the chamber has been destroyed. Now, we don't know what that 2018 socioeconomic impact study of relocating parliament says. It could, for example, say that well, because Chuane and Gauteng is very built up, we would have to find land, a new parliament building would have to be purpose built, it would take five, ten years, it would cost 10 billion rand, and in that context it then becomes a, a better informed discussion on what to do. But right now, at this point in time, we are missing that uh, socioeconomic impact report. It has been promised the presiding officers will get a briefing finally on Monday. And we're hoping, we're hoping that this report will then be released. So there's a bit of clarity and whichever way and whichever side of the debate you want to stand on, more information is available. I mean, one of the, I've done a little bit of building in this country and a little bit of uh, rebuilding in the U.S. And one thing I did learn was that all construction projects cost three times as much as the estimate and take four times as long to finish. So, you know, if you say it's a billion or so rand to rebuild the the uh, the parliamentary building, it, it's going to cost three or four, and it'll take forever to finish it. Uh, by which point who knows where we'll be. And if they move, if they decide to move it to Midran somewhere just outside the Mall of Africa uh, or uh, tell the, the Pan-African Parliament they have to find a new home somewhere else and take over that, it's still going to cost a fortune. And I guess the, the other argument is that the Western Cape will insist that there is an enormous economic impact on the economy of the Western Cape, separate and apart from the cost of building or rebuilding or running the parliament and its associated offices in any case. But I'll hazard a guess, I'll put this marker down on, on the checkerboard, on the, the drafts board, on the chessboard, that no member of parliament really wants to give up the opportunity to spend some quality time in Cape Town. 
I think you have you you have a point there. As a journalist, as a reporter, I would also like to say that moving Parliament to Chwane, wherever it may be, Midrand or wherever will also then lead to the consolidation of political and governance powers in one place. And one of the issues that certainly we've discovered with Zoom in as much as Zoom is fantastic and it facilitates and, you know, let me be a little bit old and old fashioned about this. I remember Parliament in, in, in the early 2000s talking about video conferencing facilities to make it easier for director generals and ministers to connect. Nothing really ever happened on that front, literally until the COVID lockdown. So we need to embrace that. The flip side, of course, is that ministers and senior civil servants who in Pretoria, in their offices, have gatekeepers, were able to gatekeep themselves even further. Because when they come to parliament in Cape Town, they come and sit in committee meetings. There's no bodyguards. There's no spokesperson who says, uh, submit your questions accordingly in writing. Um, there is an interaction and there's a physical engagement with MPs, but also the parliamentary press gallery and other journalists that allow a level of accountability and questioning and engagement that simply isn't there when people continue to remain in their offices in Pretoria and you know you can't reach them. So that's one of the factors I think that should float within any debate on, on this. At this point in time, we're early down and I, I think your point about building costs and timeline is, is an excellent one and well taken. So for example, uh, the, the one thing that really is certain on this one is that the constitution is very clear. It does need an act of parliament to move parliament from Cape Town. It might take a little while to get that act passed and it, it, it may not quite go according to the plan of, of EFF leader Julius Malema. Yeah, I mean, I could see looking ahead in the future um, that, you know, and, I, and your point about video conferencing being a solution among many other solutions, I think is, 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 is correct. I mean, it's a way, but it's not the only way, nor should it be. But I can easily see an opportunity for moving parliamentary efforts, that is, committee hearings, occasionally even sittings of parliament, to various points in the country as a way of reinforcing the idea that this is your government and not some strange occupying force that you know lives in a world of its own. Um, because it's a big country, there are a lot of people, and many of them feel rather cut off and very distant from government or parliament or both. Yeah, I think it's a good point you're making. And, and, and some of the public engagements are happening. So public hearings do take place on laws. Uh, they could perhaps happen more frequently. We have oversight visits, um, you know, maybe not as well publicized as they could be, possibly. Um, and then we have something once a year, the National Council of Provinces goes and actually has a full sitting 
as part of a weak engagement in a province. But yes, your point is, is well taken. And here the challenge is also to the provincial legislatures because provincial legislatures also are representatives of people in a particular province and they really ought to be out and about also. Yeah, uh, I want to take, we'll take another break here for just a second, but I want to pose two questions for you. Think about them while, while we're doing this other message. One is the question of the public protector and her impeachment pending. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is the rumblings that I hear that uh, there need to be, needs to be a serious parliamentary rethink about the South African National Defense Force budget. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back again. Miriam, I, I asked you two questions. One was about the public protector's own impeachment proceedings. And the other was the, the, the grumbling and the concern um, about the national South African National Defense Force budget mission capabilities. Perhaps speak to both of those if you can. Sure. Maybe first the SANDF, because that does seem to be a lot more intractable than the suspended public protector impeachment, where there is a process and an outcome, whichever way it goes. The SANDF is short of money, short of capacity, short of capability, and it's having an impact. It's having an impact when you when you don't know that you can do your job with the equipment that's there. It is having an impact when you have a fire at a fuel storage facility and the fire is luckily put out, but the damage needs to be repaired. And who does the repairing? Does it public works? Do you do it yourself? If you do it yourself, where does the money come from? It's the outcome literally of years and years and years and many years of, of budget cuts um, of some people would say also misspending and misdirection within the SANDF flying first class. I, I'm sure you remember some of those uh, reports with regards to the now ex top, top, top SANDF official. We all know about the millions that were spent on that Cuban anti-COVID drug and the, 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 the financial and the governance and the accountability issues that were raised also by the Auditor General. None of it is any easy. None of it is, 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 is presenting any straightforward, easy answers. Um, I, had, I had asked people who know more about this than I, whether perhaps the SANDF was deployed to assist the police during the COVID lockdown in order to generate funding for the, for the SANDF, perhaps a cynical question from my side. We, we know the levels of funding because the president must, uh, in writing to parliament about the deployment, must also say how much money that will attract. I was categorically and clearly told whatever the SANDF may get as part of its deployment to assist police in the COVID lockdown, that will barely cover their expenses. So I would think that 
Defense Minister Tandi Modise is hard lobbying Enoch Godongwana, the finance minister, to start reversing some of the financial allocation issues with the MTBPS, the medium term budget policy statement that is coming up at the end of October. And that there we get a signal at least that more resources will be put behind the SANDF. Because yeah, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, I think for many, whether you are a military kind of person or not, it is embarrassing to have those incapacities and the limitations and the constraints quite so public. The public protector, Kubane, her impeachment uh, proceedings will, will continue. It's, it's day 26. It's, it's a very highly legalistic process that is unfolding with evidence leaders, cross-examination. It's, it's, it's a lot more courtroom-like than, for example, other parliamentary inquiries we had in state it's capture. It's not very dry to me. It's, it's, yes, it is. Uh, but, 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 but that happens when, I guess, when lawyers are involved one way or the other, because you've got senior counsel and an advocate are leading evidence for, for the committee for the Section 194 inquiry. You've got... Um, senior silk advocate Darlene Porfu for, for, for the public protector and lawyers are lawyers. Um, and the point is the Constitutional Court did say that um, the chapter nine head, any chapter nine head that faces such proceedings, um, because we're talking about a broad parliamentary rule that would apply not just for for Wenkwebane, but any head of a chapter nine institution. They have full rights to full legal representation. And, and that's what we are seeing unfold. We're gonna to have to take a pause here just a second. And Craig, you'll do the necessary uh, with the pre-recorded ad break, please. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back again. It's Brooke Spector. I apologize uh, to listeners because uh, we've had some technical uh, difficulties between lines dropping and power outages and all the other gremlins that afflict us these days. But we're finishing up our conversation with one of my favorite reporters, uh, Mary Merton, who covers the parliament and makes it understandable to the rest of us. In a, in a minute or so, uh, Mary, perhaps you could just tell us what we should look for over the next week, two, three, four weeks from now uh, in Parliament. What are the what are the big flashing lights that we should be aware of? I think definitely keeping an eye out on the Section 194 Committee impeachment proceedings inquiry against Busisi Wemkwebane. I think we we even though it's mostly lawyers talking, it is a public process. And it does hold important pieces of information from whistleblowers, from astronomical costs spent on, on legal proceedings, 147 million rand over four years. I think we need to watch what happens on the 29th of September. 
the president, President Cyril Ramaphosa, is back in the house to answer questions. And the four follow-up questions from the Pala Pala question that he only answered the main question, now he still has to answer the four follow-up questions. That will be interesting. I think we need to keep an eye out in terms of what is Parliament doing on repairing the fire damage. And there's going to be some interesting bits and pieces on law and legislation that, that I think will keep us all busy. And then we're going to have to come back to you again so you can make sense out of it all and explain to us. Because at the bottom, the bottom line, of course, is that these are the citizens' representatives and the, and the money that is being spent is not the government's money, it's the taxpayer's money. Spent well, spent badly, spent innovatively, whatever. Uh, it's the citizens' representatives that have to make those decisions and we should all be attuned to it. Marion, thank you again. And we'll, we'll be in touch um, in, in the future uh, so you can once again, make it all as clear as glass for us. Thank you very, very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. You take care and have a, have a good weekend. Ciao. We'll close off our program today with a, uh, just a, a quick note from me about four deaths, four passings. Earlier, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the, the former head of the Soviet Union, passed away at the age of 91. He was the last, last head of the Soviet Union. He brought glasnost and perestroika uh, to the final days of the Soviet Union and led the circumstances so that Eastern Europe broke away from its repression and the Soviet Union became 15 countries. And sadly and unfortunately, the end result of the evolution of all this is Vladimir Putin. But I don't think we can blame Mikhail Gorbachev for that. He gave his best. The second passing is somebody that I hold close to my own heart, Frank Drake. Perhaps listeners may not know who Frank Drake is, but he's the man more than any, an astronomer, more than anybody else on the planet who led the charge for a careful, scientific, and effective, and technologically proficient search for extraterrestrial intelligent life. Not the Star Trekian kind of thing, not UFOs and all of that, but the idea, the understanding that with the billions of stars out there, there must be millions of planets. And among millions of planets, there must still be millions of planets with life. And there must be hundreds of thousands of planets with advanced intelligent life. And the question he would ask would be, where are they? Why haven't they contacted us yet? Where is the Western Union telegram from the, from the, the denizens of Epsilon, Eridani, or wherever? But Frank Drake led the charge for many years and he passed away the other day as well. And then of course, Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw is a reporter, hard-edged reporter who spent his time in many other circumstances and then became world famous, I think, as the CNN reporter in Baghdad when the Gulf War in 1991 began. And he was the last person, last Western reporter there. He was able to look out his hotel window and see the and see the missiles landing and see the explosions and report from there. But he before that even, he had been the reporter in China, in Beijing, 
during the Tenamin Square uh, massacre. He was steely-eyed and uh, absolutely rock solid. And then he became even, he led CNN to becoming one of the international premier news organizations. And of course, we should not leave out the passing of the British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, 96 years old, uh, with a record-setting reign of 70 years, led the country forever, it seems, uh, with grace and some wit and some dignity as Britain trans, uh, transcended its colonial and imperial past and became a normal country. So hats off and respect to all four. This is Brooke Spector. We've enjoyed our time with you this week, and we hope to be back next week with another interesting guest and discussions about things that matter on the deep dive.